You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast, your only daily podcast on all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Aram Layton. I'm a Marlins writer as well as a minor league play-by-play broadcaster, and I am very excited about some of these non-tender options for the Marlins, some surprising non-tenders from teams across the league. We knew that would probably be the case given the financial restrictions, and that always seems to happen anyways. There's a couple guys where you're like, why did they get non-tendered? So a couple of those guys that could be interesting options for the Marlins. However, the Marlins also stepped up big time. If you listen to the last episode, I talked about how the Marlins should absolutely tender a contract to Jesus Aguilar, but I would understand if they did not, given the just unknown and uncertainty all around the situation. I also tweeted recently how ridiculous it is that Major League Baseball expects teams to make decisions about next season. And I mean, making roster decisions right now with the non-tender deadline being yesterday, yet we don't know whether there's going to be a designated hitter in the National League next year. I'm assuming yes. I think the Marlins are assuming yes, given the move to tender a contract to Jesus Aguilar, but applaud applaud the Marlins here for taking a leap of faith and spending $4.3 million this upcoming season, which is a lot of money for a small market team. You've seen teams all over, especially even the Rays, cut ties with players for much less. This team is trying to win the fan base over a little bit, and they're showing that they're not afraid to spend some money when they need to. Sure, I know most fans would like to see more money spent than $4 million on a one-year deal, but I think it's the premise of the fact that they could have easily let Jesus Aguilar walk and hid behind the, we don't know if there's going to be a DH next year and we want our prospects to get at bats. They could have easily hid behind that and they didn't and they ponied up and look, if there if there's no spot for Aguilar this coming season for whatever reason, if it's because there's more players stepping up and Lewin Diaz is playing first base and maybe an outfield prospect is hitting and Cooper is raking at the DH spot, then the Marlins can probably find a trade partner for Jesus Aguilar at $4 million. And also worth noting that if there is no DH, I still think the Marlins could find a trade partner for Aguilar. But we don't even know if Luis Diaz is going to be fully ready. We don't know how those outfield prospects are going to look. Maybe Cooper's going to have to stay out there earlier in the season or going further into the season than we expected. A lot of unknowns. The Marlins have a very nice insurance policy and a very productive player there in Jesus Aguilar, who will undoubtedly offer a big power boost to this team that really needs it. He had a great bounce back year this year. And when you listen to my season recap of Jesus Aguilar, I did about a month ago, maybe, I don't know, time all blends together. Maybe it was a few weeks ago, whatever it was, you can listen to the fact that I think those adjustments and those improvements are sustainable. And on a 162 game scale, even though I don't think Aguilar will be an everyday player for a full season, 
I think that he could definitely tap back into that 25 to 30 home run power. He gets on base. He's a tough guy to strike out. There's definitely value there, and he boosts the lineup. But speaking of boosting the lineup, there are some options the Marlins can look at there. I would say that the bullpen market is much stronger from some of the players that were just non-tendered. I know that there are some bats that people want me to talk about. I will say that I am very against most of the bats uh, that are on the market right now, but I will talk about them. And I'll, I'll give you my argument why. And you, of course, can disagree with me, but I, I will just lay it out so you can see my side of things here as to why I think the Marlins should stay put with their outfield, at least when it comes to some of these non-tender options. And I'll jump right into it. David Dahl is an option I've seen some people tweet at me. Dahl was a guy I really liked coming up, a very highly rated prospect, routinely in the top 100s. I think he got his highest to the top 50s because he was a good athlete, was hitting the ball really well from the left side, pretty good defender, but he's just slowly regressed due to some injury issues. He just can't stay healthy. Had a really bad 2020, 183, 222, 244 slash line. And yeah, the 2019 was great, but there's still a lot of swing and miss from him. He doesn't walk a lot. His speed, which was a big tool of his, has continued to regress as he's battled injury. And I just think his profile is not one that bodes well in a Marlins park. He is slowing down. Like I said, if he was that clear-cut maybe potential leadoff hitter for the Marlins that they don't really have right now, that would be an intriguing option. But his speed is down to the 50th percentile when it comes to average sprint speed. When you look at his on-base ability, he has rarely been one to walk. And even more so, he's struggled with that this past season. The splits away from cores were discouraging even when he was going well. So now with his struggles, you figure a Marlins Park would exploit that even more because at the end of the day, as his speed starts to diminish, he is more of a three-hitter or two-hitter profile. The Marlins don't really need another guy like that. I don't really see David Dahl as a fit, and I think the Marlins are better off looking at other options. I would prefer Eddie Rosario to a David Dahl, and I don't even really think Eddie Rosario is a great fit for the Marlins at this point, unless he comes at a discounted rate. But a big reason why the Twins are parting ways with him is that his value, or at least his perceived value, is rising, yet the value that teams put him at is not the same. So he wants more money. Most teams don't want to give it to him, including the Twins. And that's why, as they've shopped him for the last two years, nobody has really been interested, or at least interested enough, to take on that salary. And the Twins decided, like, let's start to look for a little bit less. And they were looking for modest returns from the reports that have come out from Minnesota in the more recent trade opportunities and the more recent shopping around of Eddie Rosario. And most teams were not even really willing to give up a modest return for him. And now he gets put up on waivers and 29 teams do not claim him. I know that the salary projected salary was high and that was a big part of it. But if he was valuable to the degree that I think a lot of people think he is, when you look at the power numbers that he's able to put up, then I think a team would have jumped in there and probably paid him that. This is the thing. With Rosario, he is not as productive, I think, as some may think when you look at the baseball reference statistics because he swings at absolutely everything and he never walks and he's an average defender. And when you look at the production, remember, this is a guy that's a corner outfielder. And I talk about premium offensive spots. Eddie Rosario is in a premium 
offensive spot in the corner outfield. This was an interesting point brought up by The Athletic, and it's a really, really good argument against paying Eddie Rosario anything ridiculously above the average value of a corner outfielder. The average corner outfielder from 2018 to 2020 hit 258 with a 332 on base and a 446 slugging. That adds up to a 778 OPS. Eddie Rosario over 2018 to 2020, 278 batting average, 312 on base percentage, and a 488 slugging. That's good for an 800 OPS. So 22 points higher, which is roughly 2% higher, or roughly 3% higher than the average OPS. However, slugging percentage is not as valuable as on base percentage. For every one point of slugging percentage, you get about 1.5% on base percentage if we're looking at sheer value and how it's translated into runs. And with Rosario, he's 20 points lesser in the on base percentage category, whereas he is a lot higher in the slugging percentage department at 40 two points higher there. So he's more of a closer to 1.5 to 2% improvement over the average corner outfielder. Is that worth the cost that he may command? I don't think so. Maybe you do, and that's fine because I understand that the Marlins definitely need guys that can just run into a baseball and hit it out of the yard because they don't have enough guys that can hit for power in the lineup to compete with the NL East at times. That's the appeal to Rosario. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to pout if the Marlins pick up Eddie Rosario. I'll get excited about it. And I do like the reuniting with James Rousen and what that could imply for Rosario. But my concern is this too. Rosario is a guy, like I said, that swings at everything. And you'd assume as his career progresses that he would get better at that, especially with Rousen, but he never got better with his plate discipline. He swung at 42% of pitches outside the strike zone in 2018, and then in 2019 and 2020 combined, it stayed right there at 42%. For reference, average in the major leagues for swinging out of the strike zone is 28%. So he is much higher than the average when it comes to chasing, and pitchers start to exploit that. We saw it happen with Luis Robert this year. I'm not even comparing the two because Robert is just an absolute freak. But Luis Robert was a guy that was swinging early in counts, chasing a lot, and as pitchers started to get used to that and started to see it, they started throwing more out of the zone and making him chase and making him get himself out. I think Rosario is a little bit more disciplined than Luis Robert was this rookie season, but I expect Robert to continue to improve in that regard. Rosario has not shown any indication that he's going to improve with his play discipline, and I don't just expect that to magically change after how many years he's been in the major leagues. He would be an offensive boost, but is he worth it for what the cost may be? I'm not so sure, and I think now that the Marlins are bringing back Jesus Aguilar, it makes it much less likely that the Marlins are going to spend right around that amount, assuming it might be four, five, six, seven million dollars for Rosario. I don't even know what his market would be because clearly teams are not that desperate to pay him. I would rather see a lineup of Cooper in right field, Lewin Diaz at first, and assuming there's a DH, Jesus Aguilar in the DH spot. Then Cooper is a much more productive player than Eddie Rosario. He has been in the last couple years. 
if he can play a full season, we just saw with this contract that very much incentivizes him to stay healthy. He gets bonuses at every uh, plate appearance threshold. I would rather see what Cooper can do in a full season than pay Eddie Rosario. Cooper is a more well-rounded player. There's really not that much of a difference between the two defensively. Rosario does have a cannon for an arm, but when it comes to range, he's not that much better out there. I'm fine with Garrett Cooper and Wright in the meantime, and Jesus Aguilar in the DH spot and Lewin Diaz at first. Also worth noting, the Marlins are hoping that Jesus Sanchez and or Monte Harrison will be able to make an impact next year. Might be a lofty goal with some of the struggles we've seen from Monte Harrison. Jesus Sanchez has looked like he's swinging it pretty good in the winter league so far, and I think that he can still figure it out. I love his raw bat speed and his ability. I do have some questions around his swing mechanics, and I think he does need to make some tweaks here and there. But from the video I've seen in the Winter League, he has looked better. I think it's much more realistic to hope that Jesus Sanchez could be able to be an impact player to a degree next year. And if he is, I want to be able to see him get that opportunity. The insurance policy is already Garrett Cooper in right field. Now that you brought back Jesus Aguilar, I just don't see the point of going to get Nettie Rosario. I know that was kind of a Debbie Downer because I just said the two guys I'm not as interested in, but I'm about to fire away a bunch of players that I think are great, great, great options for the Marlins and make the most sense. I would bet on the Marlins picking up at least one of these guys that I'm about to mention. But real quick, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Built Bar, 18 delicious flavors, six new ones, as you already know, and they are all just pretty much desserts. You got caramel brownie, mint brownie, you got lemon almond cheesecake, any dessert you can imagine. Built Bar's pretty much got a flavor for it, and they are low in sugar, low in carbs, low in fat, high in protein, covered in chocolate, easy to chew, great for a keto diet. And whether you're trying to lose or maintain weight, while indulging in a delicious treat, Built Bar is perfect for you. You can go to BuiltBar.com right now and use the promo code LOCKEDON for 20% off your next order. That's BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKEDON for 20% off your next order and a free cooler while supplies last. So after just bashing two players, which I feel kind of bad about, I think that they both can be productive players. Dahl is a bounce-back candidate for a team that could use an outfielder. I could see him going to the Indians, maybe the Royals, that could deal with him struggling. The Marlins, just those at-bats matter, and they can go elsewhere. Rosario, you know where I stand there. But there's some positive things. John Brebbia, that's my number one guy I think that the Marlins should go after. Why is he ahead of Archie Bradley, who I will get to? Because the Marlins won't have to give Brebbia multiple years, although I would not be opposed to giving Brebbia multiple years. If you don't know who he is, I don't blame you. He didn't pitch this season. He had to go get Tommy John surgery. He was an emergent guy out of nowhere, 30th round pick out of Elon University, mid-major Division I baseball school in North Carolina. And Brebbia has really put it together in his major league career. He was dominant through 2017 to 2019. He is a fastball slider guy that is really tough against right-handed hitters. Right-handed hitters hit 202 against him with a 30% K rate in his career. Great command, does not walk a lot of hitters, and the slider is elite. He leans on it very hard, but it is one of the better sliders you'll see out of relief pitchers. Funny enough, there's a couple guys on this list that have elite sliders, but Brebbia is right up there with anybody. A 169 opponent batting average on that slider. I think he'll come relatively cheap given the fact that the Cardinals were not willing to tender him a contract after a fantastic 2019 and after 
just missing this year with Tommy John. I'm not sure what his ETA is, when he'll be ready, but he was great in 2017 with a 2.44 ERA in 50 appearances. He followed that up with a 3.2 ERA in 18, and then the ERA jumped a little bit in 2019 to 3.59, but I'm not too worried about that, and I think he's going to be a very solid strikeout back-end reliever that will just carve up righties with that fastball-slider combo. There's another guy that was very surprisingly non-tender to contract, and that was Matt Whistler. Talk about a fastball-slider combo. Whistler is pretty much just a slider guy, and that's it. Reminiscent of Sergio Romo to the degree that he throws the slider 80%, or at least threw it 80% of the time this recent season, and it worked for him with the Twins. He had a good 2019 and a great 2020, and there was one consistent progression that went with his improving numbers, and it was the use of the slider. He struggled earlier in his career, and it was when the slider wasn't really prominent in his arsenal. As he found this slider, he started to use it more, and after using it only 47% of the time in 2018, he uses it 70% of the time in 2019, where his numbers were the best of his career to that point. And then he uses it this past year 83% of the time, and he was spectacular this season. So the progression is something I like to see because it's a little bit of the volatility that we see with relievers. It's like, did he just kind of catch lightning in a bottle? Is he going to regress back to those rough numbers that he had in the past? Well, remember, Whistler came up with the Braves in 2015 and was a starter, kind of similar to Archie Bradley, was not great as a starter. He was continued to be tried as a starter and then eventually gets moved to the bullpen. Couldn't quite figure it out in the pen for some years, but then finally got it going as he found this slider that he could lean on heavily. And that's the beautiful thing about being a reliever is you only really need one and a half pitches. You need one really good pitch, another pitch to change it up from here and there, and you can be a good reliever. And that was the case with Matt Whistler this year. He tossed 25 and a thirds innings. He struck out 35 and pitched to a 1.07 ERA. The slider was great. Opponents were just 11 for 77 against it with 31 strikeouts. That's good for a 143 opponent batting average. Clearly, the Twins were not totally sold on his improvements, but I'll take three earned runs in 25 innings any day of the week. Yeah, there's some command concerns, 14 walks in those 25 innings. Whistler is a one-year candidate at a low salary just to see what he can do if he can continue to build on it because I don't think that he's going to be commanding multiple years from any teams given that this was 25 innings of emergent success. His ERA was not great in 19, but the strikeout numbers were jumping as he started to use the slider more. So I think that this is a guy that is worth a look. I would much rather have John Brebbia, and I think that there's some other options that are better that I'm about to list out in a moment here. But if the Marlins are looking for a one-year candidate that should almost certainly not really command more than one year, he's a good option. And I've mentioned I don't want the Marlins to be trading for relievers, especially after these guys that have gotten non-tendered because there's some really good options out there. And I'll go to one more reliever before I go to my number one my number one guy that I want the Marlins to go after outside of the relieving area, the number one bat I want the Marlins to pursue. First, Archie Bradley. Archie Bradley is somebody that I think every single Marlins fan is looking at right now as a guy that they are hoping he the team will go get. 
I mean, he came up again as a starting pitcher, kind of similar to Whistler, except Bradley is a much more established reliever that has been good for some time now. And I'm a big fan of what Bradley has been able to do out of the bullpen. He has jumped around from a couple teams, but has gotten has continued to get better and has been very consistent. He has now settled into a closer role the last few seasons. Goes over to the Reds, was good there as well. He's dealt with pitching in hitters' parks in Arizona and then going to the Reds, and that's why he was burned a little bit by a home run to fly ball rate that was higher than average, yet his numbers were still good. His strikeout numbers are solid. He's got the poise. He's got the experience. He would slot right in to be a closer for the Marlins if they go pick him up. A contract with him is going to be probably more expensive than almost any other guy on this market in the reliever market uh, if we're talking about non-tenders, but I think he's worth it. I really think he is, and this is where the Marlins might just have to give an extra year to Archie Bradley and deal with it because I think he is as less volatile as you're going to get with relievers. I think he's proven that he's pretty consistent. He seemed to really benefit from the change of scenery from Arizona after being there for so many seasons, and that team was really struggling. He goes to Cincinnati, a team that was in a playoff race and ultimately made the playoffs and was really good in his six outings, seven and two-thirds innings, only allows one run and helped them to that postseason appearance with a 117 ERA. So I think that's a guy that's really going to benefit from a new spot. He'd seem to in that short stint in Cincinnati. And if he has a clear-cut closer role with the Marlins, I think that would be something that he would settle into quite nicely and he would be very solid for the fish there. Picked up 18 saves for the D-backs in 2019 and had six with them this past season before going to Cincinnati. If you're wondering why Cincinnati non-tendered him, I think it was mostly just because of the fact that they're trying to see where they want to allocate their money, given the fact that their bullpen is already pretty darn good, headlined by Rizel Iglesias and Amir Garrett. There's just no need to pay Archie Bradley, who's going to command a multiple-year contract now, probably in the open market. The Marlins, I think, should go two years with a club option on the third if he's willing to take that, and I think it's worth it 100% for Archie Bradley, who's only 27 years old, going on 28. I'm willing to give him the two years and a club option for the third. That would be probably one of the better offers he's going to get. I think he'll get plenty of two-year options. If the Marlins have to go with third year, eh, I would think about it. I would think about it, maybe go to a mutual option on the third year because I think he might be just worth it there. The Marlins need to do something. They need to take a little bit of a leap of faith with the bullpen, and I think Bradley could be that guy for them if they don't want to spend too, too much but just have to give up that extra year. My last but not least, probably the guy that I think is the best fit and makes the most sense for the Marlins is another Cincinnati Red, a catcher, and Kurt Casale, a solid, solid backup. And if the Marlins are not going to address the catching position to the degree that I think they should, which is make a splash, I understand if they're not going to make that splash. But if you're not going to, you need to significantly upgrade your backup backstop position. Because you cannot have a Jorge Alfaro, who you're clearly not certain about at all, if you're not going to play him in the playoffs and he's just missed time and he's just not consistent, clearly the Marlins are not willing to give up on him yet, which I understand, but they're also not certain about him. You're going to need a better backup than Chad Wallach, and Kurt Casale is that exact guy, a solid backstop who is a good defender, who is probably one of the better backup catchers in baseball. He could plug in and play a good portion of games as a starter, I think, and and hit for some power. He's a good receiver, good blocker, throws runners out, 
the baseball prospectus numbers on him as they have the, probably the best defensive catcher numbers are pretty generous and, and good for Kurt Casale where he is much better than Alfaro defensively, maybe can help mentor him defensively as we were hoping Francisco Cervelli would. And the big thing with Casale is he absolutely demolishes left-handed pitching. So you can take Jorge Alfaro, give him the day off against Southpaws, who he's pretty much got even splits. I'd say he favors righties a little bit more, so it makes even more sense. And Casale demolishes lefties. 264, 352, 465 slash line in his career against lefties. That's an 817 OPS. That's pretty darn good in what is a pretty large sample size as he's played portions of a lot of seasons now. Casale at least would upgrade the catcher position as a whole because if Jorge Alfaro struggles, you can plug in Casale and he is much better than a Chad Wallach offensively. I think they're just about the same defensively. I would love this pickup because of the power that he provides. We talk about how the Marlins need a jolt. Well, even if you're not offering that power jolt in the middle of the lineup uh, every single day, at least you have a guy that will plug in there instead of Chad Wallach, who's pretty much a single or an out. Now you're having a guy that actually offers some power production. Also keep in mind, you have a lefty masher that now is able to come off the bench in any game. And that's incredibly valuable too, to have a guy that can come in and go get pinch hit and go get a southpaw that is in the ball game that will likely happen a lot because the Marlins have a lot of left-handed hitters in their lineup. Kirk Casale is a great option to be able to offset some of that and just have a weapon off the bench and have some insurance at the backstop spot. I love Kirk Casale. I think the Marlins should give him two years plus, probably two years, no, no plus. I don't know why I said that. Two years for Kirk Casale would make sense. He's 32 years old and one of the better defensive and offensive backup catchers you're going to find very well-rounded and makes so much sense. I think the Marlins would be crazy not to go get this guy and hopefully I sold you on it as well. One other thing about Casale too is that he is a guy that gets on base a lot. 10% walk rate in his career. So you pair that with the fact that he mashes lefties, can come off the bench and hit quite well. It makes sense. The Marlins should go do it. And there's some good options out there. This non-tender deadline has been favorable for the Marlins. They did open up the one roster spot by non-tendering a contract to Ryan Stanek. If they want to go get Casali and a reliever, they can easily do that by letting Chad Wallach go as well. And that would clear up another spot on the roster. So it all comes together, and I like it. If there's any guys that you wanted me to talk about that I didn't get to, let me know on Twitter, at ArmWaitNate, at LockedOnMarlins, and I'll do another episode talking about more non-tender candidates because this is a ton of fun, and I will happily do a part two for this. As always, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to talking Marlins with you tomorrow.